Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, July 6th. We begin with a look at the issue of face masks. While the masks have become the new normal, it can be a quite a polarizing topic. We speak with a psychologist on the mindset of people who just simply refuse to wear face masks. Is the coronavirus going through a mutation? Dr. Ted Jablonski joins us to describe what he calls a new trend in cases. Calgary City Council is holding a public hearing on systemic racism Tuesday, giving citizens a chance to speak out against racism and police brutality. We'll get details on the coming meeting with Ward 9 Councillor Giancarlo Carra. From higher prices, increased shopping online and even stockpiling, we speak with a food economist on the post-pandemic future of the food industry. And finally, we head stateside for an update on the COVID-19 situation following the Independence Day long weekend. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, with details on the staggering amount of new cases coming up over the past week. 609 on your Monday morning, and as coronavirus cases spike in the U.S., those who refuse to wear face coverings remain as firm in their choice as ever. So what is driving that behavior, whether it's in the U.S. or here in Canada? We're joined by Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Bryant University, Joseph J. Trunzo. Good morning, Dr. Trunzo. Good morning, Sue and Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, as you're in your perspective, what is it? What is, I guess it's a little different for Americans and Canadians. We have a bit of a different philosophy, but overall, you know, people who say I'm not wearing a mask are adamant about it. And what seems to be behind that? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's tempting, particularly given the uh, the politics and how politically divisive things are right now. For We want simple explanations. We want to say that it's, uh, you know, conservatives versus liberals or those sorts of things. But the reality is um, it's very, very difficult to predict and understand any human behavior. So um, while we like simple answers, there really aren't. Mm. And there are lots of different things that contribute to determine why a person does any particular thing. So their personality style, their life experiences, if I had to boil it down to one thing, I would say that, uh, as everybody says, we're living in very, very uncertain times. And the the more uncertainty there is, the more need that people have for control. So they will latch on to whatever uh, seemingly small thing they have that they can exercise some sense of control over. So for some people, depending on their life experience and their personality types, they exercise control by wearing a mask and feeling like they're able to do things to control um, the virus. By doing that, for other people, they feel like they need to exercise control by not wearing a mask because that helps them feel like they are uh, have some sense of control over their lives. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And, and when you dig into the psychology of it, Doctor, I'm thinking the other part is if I if I don't know somebody personally who has the coronavirus, it, it might not you know have that much of an impact because you know maybe it's it's not as strong. I don't have a family friend or coworker. And the other thing is if I know that it's uh, thundering and lightning, I don't have, I'm not going to go golfing because I could get struck by lightning because I can see that storm. Could that unseen factor of the coronavirus have something to do with the psychology? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think that speaks to the life experience issue, right? So, you know, our behavior is dictated and changed by things that we experience in our lives. So certainly people who are, you know, working on the front lines or who have had a relative or who know people who have been infected by the coronavirus, they're going to have different attitudes, different perspectives and different experiences, which is in turn going to change and alter their behavior. Um, So, you know, 
as psychologists, one of the things that we're tasked with doing is uh, predicting, explaining, and uh, altering behavior. And I can tell you that it's exceedingly difficult in all three on all three levels. Um, it, human behavior is just not that simple, so uh, it, it, you really can't paint it with a broad brush. You know, I wanted to point out that and we've had this discussion with some of our listeners that, you know, medically speaking, there are some who can't wear a mask and we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the, the sort of, you know, the, the mental reasons why some decide they are just simply not going to. We just got a texter and you'd be fascinated by this doctor saying the mask is the sign of submission to the power of the state, plain and simple, especially if they make it mandatory. So some people just are railing against it because perhaps... The, the government is saying you must, and, and some people say, listen, you can't tell me what to do about it. Right. So, I mean, in America in particular, you know, we have we have a, a bit of a rebellious spirit. So, um, and that's not to say that people who decide to wear masks are not rebellious, but, um, uh, you know, we like having control over our own behavior. We don't like, I'm not speaking about America, I'm speaking about humans in general. Mm-hmm. It, um if we have what's called an internal locus of control, we want to feel like we have the ability to control our own existence, to do what we want to do, to do when we want to do it. And, uh, you know, human, made, human nature does not take kindly to being dictated to. So, uh, you know, again, based on your life experience, your personality characteristics, the more you pressure someone to do something, oftentimes the stronger the reaction and the opposite of that pressure is going to be. Yeah, so so you're saying to a certain extent some people think of it as maybe even a rally against the government if they have felt in the past that the government is trying to control them? Well, um, I, there are certainly people who think that way, and I think that um, – you know, whatever level of uncertainty or difficulty they're experiencing might get channeled through that. Um, uh, so, you know, I can't say that everybody, nor would I say that everybody who's not wearing a mask is rallying against the no, government. No. For some people, that might be how their uncertainty is manifesting itself, and that's how they're exercising their sense of control so that they can feel some sort of security by uh, whether it's rallying against the government or it could be like my mom's telling me I have to wear a mask. I don't want to do that so I'm not going to or none of my friends are wearing them or my, my work is telling me I have to wear a mask and I don't want to do that so you know it's really it's pushback against uh, um, against being told what to do because uh, you know we don't, we don't typically take kindly to that and again Factor in personality, factor in life experiences. Um, there's there, there's a lot that goes into determining even what seems like a very very simple behavior to wear a mask or not. Each individual uh, determinant of whether or not someone decides to do that. It's multifaceted. Doctor, do you think social media may play a role here as well? I mean, you know, there there are so many things that are untrue that float around on social media, and a lot of people. And it just is a very common thing that, you know, a lot of people don't research. So they just take it as face value and think, well, it's not healthy for me to wear a mask or, you know, there are whatever reasons they might see floating around on Facebook or any other of the many platforms out there. Uh, so, I, you know, social media helps with what we call the confirmation bias. So you seek out information that supports what, whatever your belief is. Um, 
But, you know, it's not just social media. There are mixed messages all over the place. There's mixed messages from uh, from leadership. Um, the science behind COVID-19 is still very new and it's evolving. So it changes every day. So, you know, there was a time not too long ago when they said that, you know, it wasn't necessary to wear face masks and now it is. So people take that, uh, um, that disparity in information, whether it's from a government leader or um, the, the evolving and the changing science, and they'll tend to incorporate that into uh, into what makes them feel most comfortable and safest. So social media certainly feeds that, but um, so do uh, uh, so does uh, mixed um, mixed messages from leadership and mm-hmm. the changing and evolving science. People will seek out whatever is going to tend to confirm their uh, their belief and their behavior. So true. Yeah, so true. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. That is uh, Professor and Chair of Psychology Department at Bryant University, Joseph J. Trunzo. 617 now, and it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. start your Monday morning drive. Taking a look at McLeod Trails, you come out of Walden and Chaparral from Highway 22X all the way into downtown. You're looking at about 18 minutes. There is that ongoing bridge work, though, just north of Heritage Drive. You're going to see two lanes open in both directions, and because it is work on the bridge deck, it's a bit of a bumpier drive heading across uh, that area. So just uh, be aware of that, uh, but it's not causing a huge, huge backup right now. 14th Street off to a pretty good start north down from Anderson Road up towards Glenmore Trail. Glenmore itself, eight-minute drive eastbound from Sarcy trail out towards Deerfoot. Definitely be aware if you're heading west on uh, Glenmore Trail towards Highway 8 and 69th Street. Ongoing lane closures and speed restrictions there for that big uh, ring road construction project. So it just requires a little bit of extra attention but not causing a major delay. Ever wonder what that blue cow logo stands for? It means a Canadian dairy farmer worked hard to bring you high quality Canadian dairy. So take a moment to be proud. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Seven nineteen now, and we're checking in as we do on Mondays with our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski, joining us. Hi, Dr. J. Good morning. I wanted to have a little discussion with you about a possible mutation. Is the coronavirus going through a mutation? Do you see a new trend? Is sort of in what's happening in the cases that we're seeing now? Uh, there has been a mutation. It's already happened, and it's become the dominant uh, form. So. Uh, This is really quite interesting to me personally because I heard a rumor that this virus has mutated uh, multiple times all over the place and it's and I not seen that written scientifically so this is an article saying that they they have confirmed there's been one major mutation uh, and it happened quite early in April but it's become the dominant mutation so it has gone around the world so no matter where you look this is sort of the the main coronavirus uh, that we're seeing now. So in our uh, back and forth uh, last week, Dr. Jablonski, you said it's good news, bad news. Uh, how yes. do, why do you describe it as that? So the good news is that there's really only been one major mutation. So uh, when you're looking at trying to make a vaccine, the more stable a virus is, the more likely you are to come up with a vaccine quicker and more efficiently. Okay. If something keeps mutating, whatever you're making the vaccine to might be outdated by the time you make the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the, the very good news part. The bad news is the mutation has made this virus even more infectious. So um, there's a good news, bad news to that too. So the good, the good news is that it's not more deadly. So the mutation has not been a more deadly variation 
but it's much more infectious. So what the virus did in its mutation is uh, changed a protein, which makes it a lot easier to get into human cells. Hence why it mutated that direction and that this mutation has sort of taken over because it's, it's a little more infectious. So that's the bad news part of this story uh, is that the virus has uh, sort of outsmarted us a little bit so far. So overall, that's what you're seeing as the trend. We're seeing more cases of sickness, fewer cases of death. But again, just makes us, you know, be mindful that we need to, you know, use the hand sanitizer, wear a mask whenever possible, that sort of thing. Oh, even even more so. If this is the the mutation is going into a more contagious uh, form, this uh, this makes that information even more critical. Um, and the vaccine will it will wait. I mean, it's um, there's a lot of mixed reviews there. Uh, there's vaccines in in phase three human trials, which is a very good sign. Um, that means they are giving vaccines to humans in large uh, in large trials. Um, whether it works or doesn't work or what the effect of that is has yet to be determined. But the fact that we do have a vaccine already in a, in a phase three trial is actually pretty good news at this point. Dr. Jay, uh, do you like what you see as we move deeper into to phase two of the openings here in our province? Uh, well, so far so good in regards to numbers. I think we have to be exceedingly cautious um, with every step we take. Um, so what's the good part of is that this phase is hitting in the summer when, you know, opening up has become is more outdoor, right? Yeah. So, you know, people are, are horrified to see groups of people outdoors and that, but that there's a much less risk uh, outdoors if we can keep our social distance. Uh, and the issue, if this was fall, winter, that's where we're going to run into trouble when we're indoors and it's like, well, we can have groups together. <laughs> That's going to be a different story. So I think we, st- I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged that the numbers have not gone up in Canada, that Alberta has done very well through this um, sort of opening up phase, but it's still early times. And uh, I think the biggest mistake we could make is that we opened up a little bit, nothing happened. So now we can really go crazy and just open up everywhere. And I think that would really run uh, into trouble sort of just south of the border. We're seeing that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not speculation. We're actually seeing the numbers going up. Um, And that's certainly not a good trend. So we've got, we've seen to have it contained to some degree and we've got to keep it there right now. Thank you, Dr. J. Appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. That's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Coming up on 8-12 on your Monday morning, and an anti-racism meeting will be held at City Council tomorrow. It's a public hearing, giving Calgarians a chance to share their thoughts and uh, find out exactly what will happen tomorrow, how it will all roll out. We're joined this morning by the chair of the committee, Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra. Good morning, Giancarlo. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's going to be uh, an interesting and important meeting and, and public hearing, in fact, that we'll have tomorrow. Why was it that City Council felt it was so important to have this conversation with citizens? Well, I mean, I think everyone's very aware of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been um, taking place throughout the world and the huge outpouring of uh, protest support and solidarity that took place on the streets of Calgary during our, our COVID-19 lockdown. And what we heard from the community very clearly was that they want to uh, take those protests from, from conversations in the streets into conversations in the halls of government. And this is step one to uh, responding to 
what the protesters throughout the world, and specifically the protesters here in Calgary, are protesting. And that's the ongoing existence of structural racism and, and in some cases, institutional racism, and in some cases, actual racism in the hearts and minds of individuals. I'd like to read a quote when you were talking about these, uh, this meeting and this committee. Um, this is a quote from, from you. Obviously, I'm a white guy, and I'm chairing a meeting, and we're talking about structural racism and trauma. Um, you're going to be looking at uh, a co-chair and uh, the importance of the co-chair. Let's talk about that. Well, we brought um, – so there's a woman uh, named uh, Dr. Melinda Smith mm-hmm. who has been on the faculty at the University of Alberta for years. She's just been named the vice president of diversity at the University of Calgary. She's just moving down to Calgary. She starts on August 1st, and uh, we've been uh, – she's been tapped on the shoulder to be my co-chair, and uh, we are going to uh, basically share the uh, – share the uh, council chamber head seat. We're going to sit on either side of where the mayor usually sits and run the meeting from there together. And she is an expert on uh, on structural racism and issues of diversity and uh, deeply embedded in that work and in the community. And obviously it's going to be a very important discussion and you no doubt are going to get lots of response. So if people would like to have their voice heard, obviously this is going to be a virtual meeting because we can't gather inside for this. So how do people sign up and how do they take part? Well, to be fair, I'll I'll give you a little bit more. Uh, There there will be an expert panel that's also part of the morning's proceedings. And then the uh, public submissions begin at 1 o'clock on Tuesday, Tuesday. Uh, July 7th, and we're scheduled to go into the 8th. So we'll go all from 1 o'clock until 9.30 at night on uh, uh, tomorrow, on Tuesday, and then start at 9.30 in the morning on Wednesday. And then if you go to the University of Calgary's uh, webpage, you can, uh, there will be, you know, very clearly how you contact the clerks and you can schedule to speak. If someone does want to show up and present in person, we are allowing that, but there's going to be a lot of COVID-19 protocols. So the easiest thing to do would be to call in, but if you do want to be there in person, there will be opportunity for that as well. And the clerks, I mean, as of like, I've been trying to give the team uh, their, their weekend because they've been working around the clock setting this up. But as of uh, Friday morning, there were like 70 people signed up to speak, and that's a solid two days, and we're expecting more uh, to have signed up over the weekend. Let's talk about the the fact that, you know, it seems like as far as the the major protests in our city have uh, certainly quieted and and died down, but the importance of not letting this go away just because we uh, don't see it as much in the news headlines over the past few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to translate from uh, showing up and on the streets and showing and showing solidarity for an international conversation, and then the you know the slower wheels of government responding. I was very proud to uh, bring a notice of motion uh, requesting response and action, uh, and I had 13 members of my uh, of my. Uh, Council uh, signed it, and it was unanimously passed by council. And so this is the first step, and this is the listening and learning step, but it's not as important as the next step, which is going to be actual meaningful actions. Okay, tell us again how folks, if they do want to, if they want to watch, can they just watch from home as well and, and not yeah, speak? Yes. So if you if you just, like, Google, like, city council agenda, uh, Calgary City Council um, agendas, minutes, meetings, 
you will be brought to a web page where you can sign up to speak, and there will also be you can also watch live on a web stream. Okay. And so it's uh, it, it's I think going to be uh, important for people to you know speak who need to speak, and it's also going to be important for all of us uh, to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Listen and hear, right? Listen and hear and learn, yes. Well, thank you. But that's just the first step. Excellent. Action is the next. Yeah. It has to start somewhere. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Counselor. Thank you so much. That is Ward 9 City Counselor Giancarlo Carra. It's 817. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle. Glenmore Trail and Starseed Trail. This is an ongoing construction zone, so an extra heads up for those speed restrictions and lane closures in effect right now. We are seeing that westbound drive down to a single lane. It is causing a little bit of a slowdown as you head through the area out towards 69th Street. Eastbound lane still sitting at about eight minutes, so from Starsea up towards Deerfoot. Deerfoot Trail has been a great drive all morning through the both the northeast and southeast. Problem free for you in both directions. McLeod Trail still dealing with that ongoing bridge work just north of Heritage Drive, so you're going to see two lanes open in both directions and a very bumpy commute across that bridge deck. If you are heading up further towards the downtown core, keep in mind at 13th Avenue, we've got two left lanes shut down, and that's for utility work lasting until 9 o'clock tomorrow night. See your local Western Subaru dealer today for incredible rates, starting from 0.5% and a lease bonus of up to $1,000 at Subaru's Blue Skies Ahead event. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. on your Monday morning. New eating and shopping habits are likely here to stay as we come out the other side of the pandemic. Think online shopping and food delivery. So how could this put pressure on traditional food retailers? To find out, we're joined now by food economist with the University of Alberta, Ellen Goddard. Good morning, Ellen. Hi. So, you know, we were home three months pretty much. We ordered just about everything online. I think I know the answer to this, but ultimately, is this going to affect things moving forward? Are we just going to stay with those patterns that we've recently developed? To a certain extent, yes. And of course, to a certain extent, no, because I think people miss going to the grocery store, Mm -hmm. among other things, and they certainly miss going to restaurants. But um, but I do think this gave a huge impetus to the idea of online shopping and people figured it out and figured out how reliable it was and maybe it's not so scary and maybe it is convenient. So I think to a great extent, um, particularly before we get a vaccine for this ridic- horrible disease, mm-hmm. that um, people are going to have a certain level of comfort now with online shopping that will stay online shopping one piece of the puzzle but the other is getting groceries without going into the grocery store and i'm talking about you know the curbside pickups um you know or the click and collect if they will that seems to be something that people are getting more used to as we've moved weeks and weeks and months into the pandemic yep i agree uh that's and that was actually how most of the retailers in canada wanted to get into online shopping Canada being the size of country that it is with the geographic distribution of people, I think they were cautious about online delivery. It's a completely different thing in the UK where they're heading up to 25% of grocery shopping is online because the country is so um, dense and it's so much easier to get things from point A to point B to a large number of people. But um, but clearly, click and collect was something that was generating some popularity. 
Um, the other thing that I'm intrigued about, if you remember that Loblaws bought Shoppers Drug Mart, so mm-hmm. they would have a um, easy, local, inner city, you know, downtown core kind of distribution place for food, is what's going to happen with that since lots of people still are not back at work. And it's not clear for office workers that we are all ever going back to work. I mean, so many things could change dramatically. Do you think this will lead to higher costs, more difficulty getting affordable food for people who may not make as much money, for example? That's the thing that I'm most worried about. Also, we have to recognize that a huge... Um, percentage of the population has had an income shock if it isn't even a permanent income um, Mm -hmm. shock um, for people who may never go back to some jobs. Um, So yeah, I'm worried about that. Uh, Clearly, there are some extra costs in the system. Um, You know, precautionary costs that grocers are having to take, scaling up online delivery and click and collect at the speed at which they had to do was probably more costly than if they had phased it in over a couple of years. And um, you know all the precautions in the grocery store and all of those things um, engender some costs for um, the grocery store. So yeah, I'm a little bit worried. We also have to worry in the longer term about the distribution network. If we're going to continue to see outbreaks in in the food processing industry. It isn't, by the way, only in meat. If you look across North America, we've had outbreaks in other types of food processing as well as in meat. If, um, if this labor um, issue does not get resolved and it starts to accelerate in places like California and Florida, um, the way it, um, the way it might, that will change the costs of a lot of fresh produce. Um, which is particularly worrying because um, that's something that food insecure households already find costly. Right. Ellen, let's talk about and focus on restaurants. We know that restaurants are opening up with uh, you know uh, certain protocols in place, not seeing full capacity. Um, so I'm wondering if you see this as we will be at some point or in the foreseeable future back to normal, or are people still uh, just not ready for restaurants, or have they changed their ways when it comes to, to dining? Uh, of course, I can't answer exactly that. My, my, um, from the research that we're doing, uh, it would suggest that um, people really miss the social activity, and they're not quite sure that socially going to restaurants in bigger groups is something that they feel comfortable with yet. Or if we're ever going to, I don't know. But maybe we're uh, the type of things that we do socially have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about- My suspicion is the bars, um, you know, that serve less food and, and um, used to focus more on music and um, that type of entertainment may suffer more than a, an actual restaurant where you had meals. But it's very true because so many, you know, you you got a tight group of people gathering and not sitting at separate tables kind of thing. The, yeah, the nightclub yeah. thing could be a very interesting one to watch unfold. What about foreign workers? I mean, we depend on them, well, both in the U.S., but here in Canada as well. And, you know, with the way the pandemic has been, we're not able to get foreign workers in. Does that have an effect on the world of food? Absolutely. 
Um, and foreign workers are really important in certain sectors in agriculture for planting in the spring as well as for harvesting. It's not just at one end of the growing season. And and people are having trouble. So first of all, there's additional costs of um, maintaining quarantine for those people. It's clear from some of the issues in Ontario that probably we haven't appropriate housing and we may have to um, increase the standard of housing for those people to ensure that they're going to be safe when they come to work here and uh, all of you know all of those things cost money Uh, nobody ever was doing them just because they wanted to be irresponsible they were doing them because it's what they could afford to do so um, it's worrying. Mm-hmm. It's it's very worrying. And I I don't know in the longer term if people are going to want to come if there's a risk to their health and taking health issues back to their own families in their own countries when they do go home. True. At the beginning of the pandemic, we saw the hoarding of things like, you know, cleaners and obviously toilet paper was front row and center. Maybe not to that extent, but are you, are you thinking that we're going to be kind of stockpiling and maybe going to the grocery store less often, but buying more, like planning ahead compared to whenever in the past we might go to the grocery store four times a week? (laughs) Um, I keep thinking about my mother, who always kept a stock of uh, canned goods and stuff in the basement Mm -hmm. um, of the house I grew up in. And uh, I didn't actually realize that other people didn't do that. So, yeah, I think that whole issue has been... Uh, reawakened in people's minds and I'd be very surprised if people didn't stock up a bit more when things are on sale and keep a certain supply of canned goods and also staples you know things like flour don't go bad mm-hmm. whereas a frozen meal um, can expire <laughs> and it's been a long time since you know we as Canadians went to the grocery store and found we weren't able to purchase something that we wanted so yeah I think you're right it, it changes your perspective doesn't it and it, there's a whole generation of people where that literally had never occurred in their entire life mm-hmm. before. Yeah, fascinating. So for them, it's a big shock. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Ellen. It's a, a really interesting conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's Ellen Goddard, food economist with the University of Alberta. 917, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. Watch for construction on southbound Sarsi Trail at Bow Trail through the southwest. You're going to see a right lane closure there right now. Backups of a few minutes down the hill towards 16th Avenue. Northbound lanes of Sarsi Trail, though, moving well up towards 16th Avenue. Uh, 16th Avenue itself, there is ongoing construction just west of Stony Trail. Right now, we are seeing a little bit of an eastbound delay as you head on to the northbound Stony Trail exit ramp. Other major routes across the city, though, moving well. Crowchild Trail, Deerfoot, Glenmore Trail, also moving well through both the southwest and south. East. McLeod Trail still dealing with that ongoing uh, bridge work, though, north of Heritage Drive. Two lanes are open there in both directions. Open to CIBC Smart Account and get $300 plus pay no monthly fee for up to 12 months. That's Everyday Smart from CIBC. Conditions apply. Learn more online. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 708 on the morning news. It's been a record-breaking several days of new coronavirus cases in the U.S. And the timing perhaps couldn't be worse as many Americans celebrated the 4th of July holiday at large gatherings. With the latest south of the border, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Happy Monday. 
I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm not sure how much of a stats person you are, but the numbers have been shocking. How many days in a row were new cases 50,000 or greater? Was it two or three? Uh, well, we it was it was two over the weekend, and then there were three or four last week where the numbers were forty thousand or greater. Okay. Uh, but when you're talking about numbers of forty thousand or fifty thousand, you simply are looking at it as a dire situation across a country that does not have a handle on a situation. And we don't know yet, but after what we saw this weekend south of the border, as Americans were celebrating Fourth of July, no doubt the numbers will be going up. Oh, absolutely, they will. I mean, this was reminiscent of what we saw back on the Memorial Day weekend, notably in Missouri at the Lake of the Ozarks when we saw that big pool party. Uh, it was repeated again over the weekend at that same area, but also across the country. There were pictures coming in from Michigan that showed massive gatherings of mostly young people uh, with no social distancing and no masks. And we know that there is a bit of a lag when it comes to reporting over a weekend, especially a long weekend. Uh, but there is a serious risk here that, uh, that uh, we could kind of approach that 3 million mark for confirmed cases in the U.S. by the end of this week. We're hearing in our newscast this morning uh, that the situation dire in California when it comes to emergency beds available uh, really seems to be a hot spot out west there. Yeah, look, California is having a big issue with this, and it's surprising because the state was one of the first, uh, if not the first, to uh, implement large-scale closures across the state. Uh, it opened up incredibly slowly, but once you start opening up and introducing beaches back into the regular fold, uh, you run the risk of those numbers going up. That's what we're seeing now throughout California, but that hospital situation is now playing out across the Sun Belt. It's California, it's Arizona, it's Texas, it's Florida, it's Alabama and Mississippi, where ICU beds are now filling in faster than they were over the last several weeks. Houston area hospitals are nearing capacity. Arizona is at 91% capacity. But when you're looking at Texas alone, uh, more than 100% new hospitalizations over the last two weeks, more than 110% in ICU bed admissions. And there is a fear that this is going to cripple or collapse an already struggling healthcare system. It's shocking. And, and we see so many uh, you know stories about young people not really caring and, and those coronavirus parties that some kids were having in some states. Yeah, and that's under investigation right now. That was an area in Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, where it was kind of people were putting money into the pot, and the first one to contract COVID-19 was able to walk away with that prize. Uh, and that is just kind of one reflection of this growing, um, you know, non-understanding, or, or if you really want to call it incompetence, uh, when it comes to some American people about the, the deadly nature of this virus. Uh, but at the end of the day, it all stems from a lack of top-down messaging coming from the White House, the president over the weekend said that 99% of these COVID cases uh, are not all that bad. His chief of staff was on TV just about 15 minutes ago trying to walk back those comments. But at the end of the day, there are 130,000 people dead in this country from what the White House believes is not a problem. Well, not a problem. And that's something that you mentioned on your uh, Twitter on Saturday into the long weekend. 45,000 new cases on that day where the president was quoted as saying, our strategy is moving along well. Um, these messages, and again, we're hearing a lot of the uh, Trump uh, um, you know, insiders saying, you know, doing the, the backtracking and the distancing. Uh, how long can he get away with this before there's some kind of a revolt? 
Well, I mean, look, the, the election is 120-ish days away. That might be how long he can get away with this until there is a potential revolt, not within the Republican Party, but within the American voting public. Uh, but look, the president has kind of bungled his words now for the last five months of this pandemic. It's hard to see how he's going to make any kind of move, especially within his own party, uh, with the tweets that he keeps putting out. I mean, look, he's just retweeting uh, right now his tweet from 12 hours ago, uh, using an inflammatory comment to talk about COVID-19, but also saying that death are down and, you know, things are low and steady and then blaming this on the fake news. The president has an inability to own any kind of responsibility for uh, the situation that this country is in. And he's simply going to do what he can to ensure that that 30 to 35 percent base around him just listens to and believes what he says. And a COVID aside, Reggie, I mean, you know, seeing what was his speeches during the 4th of July weekend, so extremely divisive once again, instead of trying in any way to try and bring the country together. Yeah, I mean, look, he, he was making a, a tried to make a point, at least on the 4th of July, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Americans, uh, you know, shouldn't be divided by hate, that, you know, that the country is not going to allow people to foment hate and discord and distrust. And again, 40 minutes ago, the president put on Twitter, uh, you know, a, a comment about Bubba Wallace uh, linked to that NASCAR situation, uh, but also then defended uh, the, the Confederate flag and called out NASCAR for removing that flag at its races. This is a president uh, who who is either, you know, acting under some self-defeat strategy right now or simply is blind to the situation uh, and the tensions that exist in this country. Okay, uh, switching gears, but not exactly. Normally we'd be talking with our entertainment reporter about this. (laughs) Kanye West, is this legit that he is running for president or is a publicity stunt? I mean, it, it could be uh, six of one, a half dozen of <laughs> yeah. the other. We know that this is something that he's kind of toyed with before. We know some, it's something that, you know, it, it, it could be potentially to just put some attention on him, take some attention away from the president. Uh, but this is simply where we are now in this country, where there are so many people frustrated with the lack of leadership coming from what is supposed to be the head of all politicians and the executive uh, of this country. You now have people just coming out of the woodwork saying that they want to do it. You know, there's a strong following behind Kanye West, but there's also a strong following behind Taylor Swift uh, and those are the comments that are floating around on Twitter right now does she decide to make a, a jump in instead because she has more support than Kanye does well maybe one of them could be a running mate I <laughs> guess it wouldn't be Taylor Swift so much but it's just it's it's crazy isn't it I mean you know and and moving forward we're, we're getting very close as you said to the election is this just does this muddy the water or is this just you know a bit of a distraction that will go away do you think I mean, look, it could potentially be a distraction. Again, it could be a publicity stunt and it could simply be to kind of, you know, refocus everyone's attention to say, look, there have been so many distractions out there that are taking away from the big picture. Maybe this is the distraction that's going to put people back into perspective to talk about what the actual issue is in this country. Because, look, jobs are in a bad place right now. The economy's in a bad place right now. Healthcare and the people's uh, and the American people's livelihoods are in a bad place right now. Yet nobody can focus on something for more than 15 minutes before something shiny catches their attention much like what we're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, rounding it back out to say this country has problems and they need to be dealt with. Reggie, I'm going to ask you something. We got a text, and I'm hoping you can address it for us here. Uh, we, we speak with Jackson every Friday about all things U.S. We had to speak with you because we're on the other side of the, uh, you know, long weekend. We get people, when we talk about the numbers of coronavirus cases and how dire it is, writing things like this. Uh, There you go, grinding your axe, and it's actually you that is spreading the hate. We get people saying that we're, you know, uh, throwing uh, shade at the president, so to speak. Where do you get your numbers from when it comes to the coronavirus cases? I'm going to give you a chance to, to let people know where you're getting your numbers from. 
Yeah, look, and, and I'm not going to talk for just me. I'm going to talk for all reporters. Okay. We don't make numbers up uh, off the top of our heads just to spew hate. I had a tweet of somebody tweeted me over the weekend say that I simply try to cause fear and panic. The numbers that we report are numbers that are given to us by state health departments, by local health departments, and by the Centers for Disease Control, along with uh, uh, sites that aggregate all of those numbers. These are numbers that are serious in this country. These are numbers that are real in this country. And uh, the fact that you are looking at the Centers for Disease Control, which is obviously a federal health agency in this country saying that the severe number of spikes that we've seen over the last week could result in 140 to 160,000 deaths by July 24th is a stat that is coming from a taxpayer-funded federal health agency in this country. That is where we get our stats from. We don't make these stats up. This is simply the reality that is not being talked about by the White House, and it is not a disease that has a 99% okay rate. Thank you, Reggie. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 717 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. One traffic light from the mountains. We've got a couple of things to watch out for now. We managed to get over top of that collision in the southeast westbound 50th Avenue over top of Ogden Road. It is blocking off the right lane with uh, tow trucks on scene. So hopefully this will be cleared up in the next 15 minutes or so. It is causing just a little bit of a slowdown as you make your way down the hill towards the uh, intersection at Ogden Road. We've also got traffic signals flashing in the southwest at Old Bev Coach Road and Coach Hill Road. Crews have been uh, dispatched to head over there and fix those, but be aware of some small slowdowns in the area. Off to a pretty good start, though, on Deerfoot Trail through both the northeast and southeast. We're also seeing Glenmore Trail, an eight-minute drive eastbound from Sarcy out towards Deerfoot. That glare factor, though, is going to be an issue, so watch out for that as well. Slight volume on northbound Crowchild Trail between Glenmore and Bow Trail if you're continuing towards downtown. Open a CIBC Smart account and get $300 plus pay no monthly fee for up to 12 months. That's Everyday Smart from CIBC. Conditions apply. Learn more online. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter. I'm Freddie Howard. now and hundreds of golf courses across Canada offering free golf to kids under the age of 16 who are accompanied by a paying adult. It's part of the Take a Kid to the Course program and with all the details we're joined this morning by Jim Thompson, Director of Member Services for the National Golf Course Owners Association of Canada. Good morning Jim. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, obviously this is a great initiative. You're trying to get young kids interested in the game of golf, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, Are the numbers down? Is that part of the problem? Or is this just, you know, something you do to try and keep bolstering the numbers altogether? Actually, no, the numbers are up in a lot of cases. What we're seeing this, I mean, this is the 20th year of this this program. We've been doing this a long time and it grows every year. Uh, there has been a few issues this year with communications, of course, with golf courses going through some COVID issues. But the big thing for us is we get as many kids out on the golf course for a positive experience as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is always one of our favorite weeks of the year because we hear so many great stories about kids getting that first experience and having such a great time. Mentioned the hundreds of courses across Canada. How about in uh, southern Alberta or Calgary specific? How many different opportunities would there be for the kids? Well, we've got 60 in Alberta alone. So, uh, well, again, I, I'm afraid to get on and start giving numbers because I'm going <laughs> to miss somebody at the same names. But there are 60 in Alberta, so they range everywhere from, of course, north to south, Crow's Nest, all the way up to up north. So there's, a, there's a something for everybody. All they need to do is go online and find the one near them. 
And why not? I mean, what a great way to get the kids. I mean, you know, they've they're, they've been doing their schooling in front of the computer. They're stuck there right now for a lot of cases. So a great way to get them out in the fresh air and maybe for an adult to take a first time lesson or play a game of golf for the first time as well. Absolutely. You know, there's something that, that with any sport, your first experience is so important, whether you're a youngster or an adult who's looking at some new opportunities for recreation. What we found is a lot of kids are being exposed to the game, maybe in school through the golf in schools program or, you know, but the interesting point is there's a, to get them out on the golf course and to get that first experience, what we found is that they then become golfers. And when you're a golfer at that age, you've got a lifetime ahead of you of, you know, great times that play until you're 85, hopefully, mm-hmm. and you know, start as young as possible. But the, the key for us is that first experience because once a kid gets on a golf course with an adult, any adult, grandma, grandpa, you know, the neighbor, whoever, who introduced them to the game, and they get that experience of knowing where to go, how to, where to stand, where to be, how to book a tea time, what the pro shop looks like, where to order the hot dogs, right? That's <laughs> the important part. Um, and once we see, once they do that, then they say, you know, then they go home and say, you know what, I, I think I want to look at golf, mom and dad. So it's very important for us, and it's important for the industry and for the game. Good stuff. Is there a one-stop shop website, or do you just check individually go, uh, individual golf courses? No, we put them all in one spot. That's a kidsgolffree.ca, kidsgolffree.ca, and you're going to see a listing. It's very easy, it, it, a map. You just pick your area. Uh, very easy. I, I suggest also that, that they contact a the golf course to be sure that if there's any restrictions. Yeah, Sometimes point. courses will put restrictions on Saturday, Sunday mornings when they're really, really busy. Sure. But the, you want the kids out there when it's not as busy, uh, especially beginners, mm-hmm. So that they get a chance to not be pushed, not be hurried around, and really get a nice experience. Sounds great. Thanks for your time this morning, Jim. Listen, thanks for your interest. I really appreciate it. That is Jim Thompson, Director of Member Services for the National Golf Course Owners Association of Canada. And again, it's kidsgolffree.ca. A great idea to get out and golf and take your kids with you. Excellent. This is a great idea as well, brought to you by Park2Go Airport Parking with Value Valet. Thank you for parking it at home at this time to help flatten the curve. Please keep safe. on the morning news and uh, meeting another community champion. This has been the favorite part of the past two months Mm -hmm. when it comes to to, uh, positivity on the show. Those people who say we're all about, we we give you factual information, but we like to celebrate those people who make a difference within community champion. And we have another one. Her name is Kathy Taylor. So to tell us the story of Kathy, we have our nominator, Karen Begg. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. So you wrote, it looks like quite the essay on Kathy. <laughs> you, you must feel strongly about what she has done uh, to, to help her neighbors out. What is it? Well, Kathy Taylor has done a great job. She is our coordinator at the Twin Views Communal Garden in West Dover in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And when I first met her, she was uh, championing to take over the neglected tennis courts in Dover and repurpose them into a community space. And not only did we manage to do that, she was instrumental in getting an area of it depaved so we could start growing fruits and vegetables for the community. She coordinates uh, our our donations, which go to the Sunrise Community Resource Center. We've grown food for the Alex Community Food Center, the Calgary Lunch Program, through the Grow a Row for the Calgary Food Bank, and we've given away well more than 100 pounds of vegetables wow. at this time. 
That's fantastic. And I understand that she actually organizes some of the local schools and gets the kids out to volunteer too. And Kathy's wonderful at it. She's warm and welcoming and very knowledgeable about the plants that we have growing in our garden. Wow. So did you know her before this? Has she been somebody who's been active in the community before she spearheaded this? Uh, she's been active in the community. She's lived in the community much longer than I have. And I uh, met her mostly through the Dover Community Association as well as the garden. So obviously in your eyes, she is a community champion. Oh, absolutely. She's wonderful at sharing her experiences and her knowledge and educating the rest of us about gardening in our community. And we're communal, so there's no fees. Uh, it's all volunteer run. Very, very grassroots. Yeah, well, you got to get everybody behind you if it's volunteer. But, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, Kathy is a, a perfect example of that. And we'd like to thank you for nominating, mm-hmm. Kathy. Thanks, Karen. Thank you very much. Kathy's a wonderful and, and uh, much uh, wonderful volunteer to have in our community. Sounds like it. Thank you, Karen. That's Karen Begg, who nominated Kathy Taylor in the community of Dover. And when you look at her uh, her letter, she said, I uh, hope Kathy gets some recognition for all of her efforts and her infectious no pun intended, passion, because <laughs> during the pandemic. Love so it. making a difference and a space that isn't being used, yeah. the community garden. So a community champion, we salute Kathy Taylor. You know what? We salute so many of you, and we've had the pleasure of reading so many stories over the past bunch of weeks. This does wrap up our community champion, uh, you know, just a segment that we really wanted to do to highlight the people who've done such great things for their neighborhoods without asking for anything in return and that's the story of calgary that what is what makes this city great right is that people step up they help out and there are truly you know thousands of community champions across the city it's a shame we couldn't recognize all of them but it's been a pleasure to tell their stories and share their stories with all of you the listeners and thank you to everybody who took the time to nominate somebody through this community champion program good stuff tip of the hat and give them a pat on the back if you know them